Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Downrange, presented by Mr. Ma Golf. If you haven't checked out Mr. Ma Golf, please do so. They have incredible fall colors still available. To include the one-arm hoodie, it's getting ready to ship out soon. Please visit them at www.mrmagolf, that's mrmagolf.com. Follow them on Instagram at mrmagolf. Thank you to everybody who's purchased shirts, sweaters from them. I've seen a lot of them on social media, whether it's Instagram or Twitter, or people just reaching out and sending me notes. I appreciate the support from the listeners. I appreciate the support to Mr. Ma, and the money's going to a great, great cause. Not only is it a small business that's trying to get off the ground, but as you know, they support five adaptive athletes, all of who are doing their part to help grow the game and get others that might look or play a little bit differently than you or I do into the game of golf, and that's a good thing. Incredible feedback from last week's question and answer podcast. Thank you to everybody who followed up with me. Hopefully you got the answers that you wanted, and I think we're going to try to do them a little bit more often. So if you have any questions, hit me up on my DMs, Twitter, Instagram, at Cody McBride NLU, or please send me an email, Cody at NoLayingUp.com. And we'll try to get some more loaded onto the feed. As always, if you do not subscribe, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, review, whatever you do. And also share with your friends. This week on the podcast, we have Chaps. He is the host of a very popular military slash veteran podcast called Zero Blog 30 for Barstool Sports. He also is a co-host of another podcast that they have called Podfathers. It covers basically everything parenting from a father's point of view. He's absolutely hilarious on social media, so if you're not following him, please do. And we talked about it all. Him growing up, going to seminary school, joining the Marine Corps, his injury got shot in Iraq. What kind of happened to him after that? Talked a little bit about parenting, his transition out of the military, how he got hooked up with his job at Barstool, and a lot more. This is Uncle Chaps. Enjoy. Just like I was saying a little bit earlier, big fan of you, everything that you guys do over at Zero Block 30, Podfathers that you also co-host, your writing, it's spot on. So if you could give the people uh, coming from a different side of the internet here that might not be familiar with you, kind of an overview of, of who you are and what you do, I would greatly appreciate it. Yeah, so I'm Chaps. I work at Barstool Sports. I've been there about six years and I host a podcast called Zero Block 30. Uh, with one of my co-hosts, whose name is Kate. She did two tours in Afghanistan. The other guy is Connor. He went to West Point, played football there, and did a tour in Iraq. We've been doing this show for about, uh, I guess, six years. We actually just hit our 500th episode. We're on like 504 now. Shout out New Orleans. So we are. Uh, we, we really love doing it. I, we started it kind of to be the online version of the VFW. We take all these stories that you see on like Army Times, Military Times, Task and Purpose and places like that and try to break it down for the average platoon member because there's a lot of things that get a little more heady. We don't take a lot of things seriously, but the things that we do take seriously, we take it very seriously. Um, Like we just talked about Major General Donahoe and all that trial and tribulations that going on there so we'll get into politics we get into military stuff and we get into a lot of poop jokes so it's <laughs> we're kind of all over the place the hardest thing now about the whole uh donna ho story is is also 
that there's another major general, Donahue, and the confusion between he actually got promoted to lieutenant general, so it cleared it oh, up. Oh, there so. you go, Help, helping some people out yeah. until they're just looking at last names. I actually served. Right. I, I served under uh, Donahue, and every time the Donahue stuff was going on at Fort Benning, I was like, "Wait a second, what's what's going on now?" Mm-hmm. Crazy, crazy times indeed. And I, I think it's kind of weird to see the evolution of the military and senior leaders within the military. Now you see it in the army specifically, but like never in your wildest dreams would you ever think that like the highest ranking members of the military are like reaching out and talking to random bloggers, meme accounts, you name it. People are just saying and throwing random things out there. And because they see it, they feel like they need to reply and I don't know if they don't realize, like, these people are just drumming up shit, trolling their lives or what, but it's it's crazy how this thing continues to play out. No, I agree. I, we act, That was the most of our conversation yesterday because it's kind of like the argument of a good leader always sticks up for his troops. And I, I don't know why it, it feels like with women in the military, people are like, no, it's fine if people talk shit about them like it's totally okay but if you change that to another minority population in the united states if you if you put those same exact things on black folks again and we're saying that these black people don't deserve uniforms they don't deserve like and trying to make them out to be something else instead of valuable service members it would never fly and i don't understand why it does fly in some ways where you can call a woman in a maternity uniform a pansy, like when you've never served yourself. Like how dare exactly. you? Exactly. And I think just to get people caught up, so what, what originally started was the Army creating maternity flight suits for female soldiers. And then it got right. picked up by Tucker Carlson and all these other big-name people with large followings and started, yeah, and, and started like making these ridiculous statements Saying and trying to use like females who serve the military, who do a phenomenal job standing up for their country, following orders every single day, doing everything that's asked for them and strictly judging them and and like making this rash assumption that somehow they are weaker and like trying to relay that to like, oh, look at these brave men and like tied it into the Russia, Russia, Ukraine conflict. And you're like, what the hell are you guys talking about? But that was the worst timing. I mean, if you want, if you wanted to have like a perfect, that was just a bad take at a bad time. Really nut licking on the Russians <laughs> at, a, at a time period when they're getting their asses kicked and fleeing back to Russia. Not a great look for the masculinity of the old Russians. No, absolutely. Plus, did you see last night uh, President Biden talking about nuclear options and and his fear for Russia? I think it was the yeah, first time that. That publicly, he's like, no, this is like a, a for real thing. Like, I know the man very well. I, I'm c- concerned at this. This is the highest threat that we've been under since, like, Cuban Missile Crisis days. Yeah, I mean, I did see that. It's kind of scary. Like, when you think about it and you see the news reports and you you see really, like, I, I was a dog handler in the Marines. That was what my job was. So you kind of see a put a dog that was supposed to be a vicious dog that's pushed back into the corner and he's still got some teeth at his disposal. And we're not sure if they're coming. So old Biden going out there, I think that's one of the best parts about whatever cognitive decline that he does have. <laughs> like if he does have cognitive decline is that he's just, he doesn't have the filter. Like his people all have the filter, everybody else in the white house. I think Biden's saying what he actually believes and not giving the quarterback answers anymore. 
Yeah, that's a very good point. Like, hey, we whispered that. Like, that was supposed to stay between us. What do you... Uh, excuse me. I have yeah. this announcement to make. Right, exactly. I used to say, uh, you know, I, I was in the military for a, a while, just like yourself. And when I was getting out for, like, the last six years, I ended up... You know, everybody wears radios or ha- carries radios, has headsets, but I had to wear uh, dual Peltors, and I would get our, our command sat on one ear and assault chat on the other ear. And you have so much stuff going on in mm-hmm. your in your ears on both sides because they're both going off at the same time. And then you're verbally trying to say stuff. And there's been multiple times where just like you're repeating something that makes no sense because it's putting the information together out of both ears. That's honestly what I feel sometimes about President Biden. I'm like, yo, <laughs> yeah. like, what are you doing? Just like, hold on a second. Think yeah. about it and then form your sentence. Right. And it. I, that's kind of, and it's strange looking back at videos from him from the seventies and our seventies, eighties, nineties, and even when he was vice president, just a totally different speech style. But Trump was the same way. Like if you do a, yeah. a by side by side twenty years ago, the way that Trump spoke then and the way that he speaks now, they're both drastically different. Uh, maybe because they're both seventy five and older. <laughs> maybe that's the reason. <laughs> I mean, it's to me my favorite political stat is that Dan Quayle is still younger than Trump and Biden. That's crazy. <laughs> Nuts. Interesting times for sure. But back to you. So I'd say, just like you said, you know, you're a dog handler in the Marine Corps. But I think your story starts way, way before that. So let's go back to when, you know, Chaps was a little guy. Were there any aspirations of the military? Or was that just oh. something that, that was like, oh, no, like, what's going on right now isn't working out. Let's pivot and, and find a new way in life. I would describe my childhood as like a Huck Finn kid where I was like your typical Northern Florida, (laughs) not very affluent background family, military kid and things like that. I was barefoot all the time in the woods, hanging out, riding my bike in the woods and doing all that kind of stuff. But I never really had an aspiration of doing that. And looking back in hindsight being 2020, of course, I don't know if I had a particular job in mind that I wanted to do. Like, there was nothing that really interested me in that way. I just kind of wanted to play all the time. Um, As I got older, I decided, because my grandfather was a pastor for 50 years, I was always decent at public speaking, got to do a lot of that stuff at school. And I thought, you know what, maybe I could do follow the old family business. So I went to seminary and hung out there for a while and Really, it was until I was about to graduate. I was very close to graduating, had already been offered a job as an associate pastor at a church, which people that listen to me now cannot believe that that's how (laughs) religious I was in a Southern Baptist church, not even like a liberal church or anything like that, Southern Baptist church. And so I went into the the building to meet with some of the deacons there, the, the older fellows who were the leadership of the church. And one of them was a Vietnam veteran. And he looked at me, I think he was probably about 50 or 60 at the time. And he looked at me and he was like, son, you're 20 years old, you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, you have all this seminary education, but what do you know about life? And what can you teach me about wisdom? Because to me, that's the role of the pastor, is to impart wisdom upon the flock. Like, what can you do? And I, I was kind of stunned. Like, there's not a lot of times that I'm speechless, but I was stunned. And I thought, you know what, this dude's right. Like, what am I going to say life experience. Everything that I have is theory. There's no practicality behind it. There's no experience. So the war was going on. So I called my mom and I said, you know what? I think I'm going to join the Air Force. And she said, what? Smart You're man. So, 
<laughs> she's like, you're so close, dude. Like, why would you do that? Just finish school. And then if you want to go be a chaplain or something, do that in the Air Force and get your school paid for and all that stuff. And I was like, no, I don't want to go be a chaplain because then I'd be basically back in the same type of position, just with troops instead of Vietnam veterans. So I went to the Air Force recruiter to enlist, and he was late, never showed up to our meeting that we had set. A Marine comes walking out in dress blue deltas, which is like the short sleeve shirt with the blood stripe on the trousers, had a fat stack across his chest, was bald completely, completely shaven, just it looked exactly like you would picture a Marine. And he came out and he was like, are they late again? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yes, sir, they are late again. And he was like, you look like you're in good shape because I played basketball and stuff like that. You look like you're in good shape. You want to hop up on the pull-up bar? I, I did sure, and I like hopped. I did. I was doing ten, and he was like, "All right, get down." He's like, "That's enough. That's good." Yeah. He's like, "All you have to do is three. When do you want to go to boot camp?" And I was like, "What? Whoa! Like I just I want to do the initial talk. Like what?" A, and he's <laughs> like, "Oh!" And he kind of mind fucked me a little bit because he looks at me and he says, "Oh, you're probably not ready. You you probably didn't want to do something as tough <laughs> as the Marines. You probably want to go next door." And at that time, I'm like, "Well." No, I don't want yeah. to go. Next How dare door. you I'm insult do me? This. Yeah, I met I met you five minutes ago, but I'm not going <laughs> to let you run my life. So I showed him and signed up. And I called my mom like that day, and I said, "We're I'm going to do all the paperwork." I signed up, and she was like, "Oh, great! When do you go to San Antonio for where the Air Force boot camp is?" And I said, "Well, I'm actually going to boot camp in Paris Island." And her brother is a Marine too, and she she knew exactly what that meant. She was like. You're, you understand there's multiple <laughs> wars going on. <laughs> I was like, I do. And uh, I went, and it wasn't great. <laughs> she was right. Oh, man. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a lot. First, where did you go to seminary school at? I went to Southeastern uh, College at Wake Forest, which is the seminary. It's called the Seminary for the Southern Baptists. is called Southeastern Seminary. Okay. Did you enjoy your time there? I did. I liked it a lot. Like, I... It, kind of the same really mindset I would think of I tell people that I've had three different lives I have like pastoral Matthew I have Marine Staff Sergeant Cothran and then I have chaps from Barstool Sports <laughs> and at that, at that time I it just was what it kind of was you know like I don't know if that makes sense yeah absolutely and I think I'm trying to think of most people I guess going through seminary at some point in time we know you were involved in the church via your grandfather mm -hmm. and everything else like that, but did you ever do any sort of like youth pastoring or, or anything like that? Yeah, so I was, from the time I was 16, really, I started teaching Sunday school classes because I had always, like theology, I had always enjoyed it. I Like the philosophy behind it, the logic and rhetoric and learning about uh one was young earth creationism. I was fascinated by young <laughs> earth creationism and the ideas behind it and read a lot of books about that. And comparing and contrasting my worldview then and my worldview now is very fun because I feel like I have like both sides. Right. I have thought like the most conservative shit in America. The first person I ever voted for for president was Mike Huckabee. And <laughs> that was my vote for president that year. I think it was the year 2000 when I turned 18. Mike Huckabee was the guy that I want, wanted to win. So my entire worldview has shifted over the past 15 years, but it's been kind of fun. In seminary, like oh, what I was saying about the three different lives, I 
always wanted to move up the ladder. Like no matter no matter what position I was in, if I was in leadership at church, I wanted to move up. If I was in leadership, if I started in the Marines, I wanted to move up. The motivation was different. Like the motivation for Marines was just so there would be fewer people who could actually yell at me. Like that's the reason why (laughs) I wanted to get promoted. I don't want that motherfucker to yell at me. I don't want that motherfucker to yell at me. But it worked. So I got promoted quickly, and now I'm at Barstool and doing what I do here. So uh, I really, really lucked out in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. I think your childhood, uh, you know, the church being such a big part of your life, were you like a normal kid or were you one of the kids who was like, oh, he's a church kid. Like, don't ask him to go do these things. He's not going to drink. He's not going to do any of this like that. Let, let's just let Matthew be. Yeah, a lot of it was that. Um, I don't know. I wasn't the weird kid. I was always <laughs> like a funny kid, I guess. Like I always had the same sense of humor. I didn't talk about dicks or tits or anything like that back then. <laughs> but my sense of humor was always there so that kind of has always been like a mainstay in in my life so even people that i went to high school with and would talk bible stuff with they didn't view me as only i wasn't viewed as like a homeschooled kid i guess i I should say right athletics yeah i played um baseball and i played golf and tennis good so you had something that obviously the marine corps recruiter was like this is you're gonna be fine you spoke a little bit about basketball and being able to knock out 10 pull-ups, but when they finally gave you your pitch and got you to sign your contract and said, hey, you're going to go to MEPS and this is your ship date and everything else like that, did you know what you are going to be doing? No, I had no idea, man. Like, I legitimately just wanted to go. Like, I didn't even, I was like, I'll do open contract. Those, as soon, and once I made up my mind that I was going to join the Marine Corps, I was just ready to go because I have a very one-track mind and become hyper-focused on certain things. I read so many books about the Marine Corps in that like three-month period that I was waiting to go. Anything I could get my hands on to learn the history and things like that. And I got to boot camp, did well, got to like combat school, did well, MOS yeah. school. And by the time I my MOS school, I graduated at the top of the class. And one of the things they ask you if you do that do you want to go be SRT, which is the Marine and military version of SWAT, or do you want to be a dog handler? And my ears perked up a lot about dog handlers. I didn't know it was an option. I didn't know they did that in the military. And the girl, the woman that I was dating at the time, also wanted to be a dog handler because we started dating oh, in MOS school. Of course you did. And I was did. like, well, shit, if she's trying to go on that board, I'm going to already have a spot because I'm finishing tops. So I took the spot. She didn't get it. She went to Japan and I went to dog school and it ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me. Cause being a dog handler, if I didn't, if I wasn't a dog handler, I think I would have hated many aspects about being a Marine, like going in every day and some of the shit. But my job was to show up at the kennels six, six thirty, And for the first hour, hour and a half of my day at work was just playing with dogs, feeding dogs and just hanging out and petting and grooming and all kinds of stuff while everybody else is doing their morning hump or they're doing their morning run for five yep. miles or whatever. And I'm just playing fetch with my dog. It was great. Is, is the Marine Corps the only branch where like being a dog handler is not just like a secondary task to whatever MOS? I mean, obviously um, you're. So that is a secondary task in every MOS to include okay. the Marine Corps. Um, So your primary MOS would be the military police. So 
my last duty station here, I was actually the chief Marine instructor at the military working dog school and got to work with all the different branches of service. And that was great. Um, but the, so you go in and then you have your secondary MOS, but typically when you have that secondary MOS, because the secondary MOS of being an MP was twice as long as the school. The MP school was like six weeks or something like that. Dog training is 13 weeks because you have to learn uh, just a completely different skill set. So once they put that, the DOD puts that amount of money, time, and training into you, they don't want you to go back just being a gate guard. Like they want you right. to actually touch the dogs and do the things that they paid for you to do. And I think a lot of people that don't, like, they see military dogs and they think that, like, every dog is an attack dog. And that's right. not necessarily the case. So could you explain that side of it for the listeners? Sure. So there's many types of dogs, but the main types of dogs that you'll have, there's three different types. You have the explosive detector dog, which finds bombs. They are trained to find nine different types of explosives. Drug dogs are trained to find six different types of drugs. And then you have your attack dogs. Now, a drug dog could be an attack dog. A bomb dog could be an attack dog. But no bomb dog is a drug dog, and no drug dog is a bomb dog. You don't have those mixed together because the response that we teach is the exact same. And you want to know if you're going up to a trunk, if it's cocaine or TNT. Like, it's <laughs> the differences Pretty in big how difference. you approach those situations are, are wildly different. But there's also some really cool dogs that they've done in the past, like IDD dogs, the infantry detector dogs, or they have SSD dogs, which are specialized search dogs. And those are the dogs that wear radios on their backs. They rely on their hand, uh, their handler's hand and arm signals. They can go seven, 800 meters ahead of the handler. If they, if the handler or the Intel suggests that there's like a cache or an IED, the dog can actually go hundreds of meters ahead if you can keep eyesight. They can go hundreds of meters ahead where you can call them back and they will give their response whenever they come back. Ah, uh, it's crazy. It's so cool too to see like how smart not only dogs are in general, but like the different tracks within them. Right. And it blew uh, learning and going to the school and really immersing myself in the knowledge of dogs was so much fun. Like the things that you learn there and still now. Even though I am a subject matter expert in being a dog handler, I learn things about their capabilities still all the time, like their ability to detect cancer, their ability to detect termites in a house, their ability to detect COVID in some ways. They were able to do that. But the way that I explain it, and it really blows people, people's minds, because there's many, many more types of explosives than nine. And how I would explain it whenever we would do demonstrations is we're essentially teaching the dogs to find colors. So if I could teach you to find the four primary colors, everything else in the color spectrum, you're going to be able to find too. So if I teach you to find red, the likelihood that you find orange and the different shades of orange because it involves red is so high. If I teach you to how to find blue, you're also going to be able to find green and most likely yellow in some ways as well. So the drugs, they all mix together and they'll like hash and weed and cocaine. The other drugs that you're going to have are going to be made from that component. Same thing with explosives. If you're using homemade explosives, you're going to use one of those nine different explosives that we taught the dog to find. So if there's a variance of a little bit, that dog's going to be able to find that too. Just insane. Uh, I, I, and the fact that you retain all this knowledge. It's truly impressive. Yeah. Uh, that my, my memory is fucked, dude. <laughs> I have traumatic brain injury so i can't remember shit i did last week 
But Connor, my co-host, he's like, you're like a savant when it comes to shit that you were supposed to remember for the military. And it is, I don't remember shit about theology. There's a lot of things that I have forgotten about theology and Socrates and Plato and all that stuff that I read and spent way more time than I did on doctrine books. But that stuff sticks with me, and I remember damn near everything. Damn. All right. So what year was it that you actually enlisted? I listed in 2004. All right. So a lot of things going on then. Right. Did you know, like, fully knowing, you, by the time you went to the recruiter, Air Force recruiter, I might add, uh, luckily he wasn't there, but who knows? You probably had a, you would have had a completely different career, future, who knows, but you would have lived a lot better life. That's the number one thing I tell people all the time. If you're going to join the military, mm-hmm. Air Force is probably your uh, very smart I tell bet. my kids that. If they're interested, I'm like, yeah, do the Air Force. Who? What the fuck are you trying to prove to somebody else? <laughs> exactly. Like, just, just go have a better life and still do your part. That's the crazy thing. Like with all these people doing stolen valor <laughs> and making up all their stories, there's nothing wrong with loading planes. Yeah. Like loading planes and doing a – everybody has a job to do. You did your job. And that's why we never talk about – I'm a combat veteran or any of those things, because what you did in a large part wasn't determined by you. It was determined by the people who were in charge of you and put you in different units, put you in different places. You happened to be there. I happened to be where I was and happened to do the things I did. And every other Marine, if they were put in my body, would have done the exact same shit. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I, real quick, quick tangent. That guy, Jr. And his ab- ability to continue to double down on all of it is truly impressive. Like, it really psychopathic is shit. I mean, I'm like, what are you doing, man? Like, this, this, you're just like continuing to dig your hole deeper and deeper and deeper. When, like, from a veteran point of view, I'm like, well, just look at his 214. Like, he's right, just showing you easy. TDY orders with like, they're basically dummy orders. It, they don't mean anything. Yeah. And you were an E3 in the Air Force, dude. Like, you're not doing secret Searle shit. You weren't hanging, you weren't in fucking Rob O'Neill's backpack right. whenever he was going into Islamabad. Like, that wasn't T- Tough times for that, that, uh, the section of Northwest or Northeast Ohio, wherever he's at. I don't know what they're really doing out is. there, but who knows? Anyway, 2004, mm-hmm. a lot of stuff kicking off in the world. You obviously knew going to the recruiter, like, yo, I'm, I'm more than likely going to go to war. Mm-hmm. Is that something that, like, Outside of reading the books, and I'm sure watching a ton of Marine Corps movies and stuff like that that you were okay with, were you excited about, or where were you kind of at? Ignorance is bliss is where I was at. Uh, Everything looks sexy to you when you're thousands of miles away and there's no rounds going by your head or anything like that. And the first probably year and a half that a dog handler is in the Marine Corps is in the initial training phase, like where you're doing the boot camps, MCT, MOS, and then follow-on schools. So by the time I got to Okinawa, it was 2005, and I really, really wanted to go. There was the Marine Corps lore about Fallujah was growing, and like it got added to the Marine Corps birthday message. And for those of us that are Marines, we know how significant that is and later marja became added as well so the now in the birthday message it includes the battle of way city it includes the battle of okinawa and it, now it includes fallujah and marja so to be included in some of those groups you knew shit was going fucking down yeah. and the way that 
our staff and COs and officers really buckled in on us of how to train for IEDs because they are happening more and more and more. Because really 2005 to 2007 is where the huge uptick in IEDs in Iraq happened. So we spend a lot of times doing buried aids because that first so I think one of the biggest problems at the beginning of the war on terror is that we had people who were essentially gunnery sergeants or master sergeants or first sergeants who had never deployed. You had majors, lieutenant colonels and colonels who had never deployed, didn't have any of that experience. And they're teaching Marines like they do have that experience. So once the experience for the dog handlers started to come back and we had several of the people that I worked with in the kennels that were back we really stopped focusing on hiding TNT inside a building. We started putting TNT in the ground. We started putting it in MRE bags because they would do toe poppers whenever you would go by. We really had to adjust the training on the fly. And I think that is the hallmark of the military altogether. Um, when I speak of the military in my experience, I don't include people that are an 05 or above, and I don't include people that are E9s and above, or really E8s and above. E7s and down, that's where the money happens. Yep. That's where like everything goes down. Everything else above that is theory. Execution is E7 and above, or below. I loved being a part of the execution. And whenever we were there and doing all the different trainings, it was fascinating to see how the dog would respond. And my dog, if he got around a lot of explosives, how he would react. He wouldn't react like a normal dog. Like a normal dog still does the same thing whenever there's a bunch of bombs or explosives going around. One night we were in a city outside of Fallujah called Karma, and there was a dump truck that had eight 55-gallons um, drums worth of explosives that had shape charges. There was a chlorine threat in the area. The S2 had told us that there was a chlorine threat in the area, and we had to go check it out. We had eyes on from a drone of this truck that we thought it was, and it was me, a captain, and a master sergeant with 1st Recon Battalion that were tasked to go up to this truck about 300 yards away from everybody else. And we had to go in there under the cover of darkness, and by the time Saika got about halfway, that's my dog's name, Saika, by the time he got about halfway, he started spinning on the end of his leash and going crazy. And I told the captain at the time and the master sergeant, this is it. This is where the explosives are. And he was like, you have to get positive identification on this. And I said, this is it. That's a positive response. Yeah. Like I'm the subject matter expert. This is the response while we're still moving towards the objective. Didn't matter to the captain. He, his orders were to get eyes on proper identification, firsthand knowledge that you can see. And so he told me well, once we got. What to did he expect to see? Who he, he wanted a PID like actual like uh, labels on the side of it or some shit? Yeah, because it, this vehicle was in the center of town. Okay. It was located right outside of a mosque there, and they were worried that it would be and it would have been a war crime. Like if peop, if we would have dropped a five hundred pound bomb on a mosque that we didn't have positive identification, there would have been hell to pay. So we had to get it. And sometimes you, that's the way the mission goes. And there's an old adage in the, in the military where it's mission accomplishment and then troop welfare. Accomplishing the mission is the mission. That is the objective. And everything that happens to the person is secondary. So I had to go up on the truck, look inside, and then I was like, fucking run. <laughs> so we took off going back to the rest of the fellas. And the master sergeant, on our way back, Still with like his weapon ready to go, ready to rock and roll, is cracking up. And we get back to the house. I'm like, what's so funny, Top? And 
he's like, it's hilarious to me that the captain is going to get like a silver star yeah. and you're going to get like a nam. <laughs> and he's like, you're the dumbass that got up on the truck. And I was like, yeah. And that's exactly the way it went down too. It was exactly like that. God, what a world. And you're right. And that plays out every single day. Officer risking his life yeah. for it. The guy actually doing the job gets a little little pat on the back if he's lucky and says, all right, we'll see you, see you on the next mission. Thank you for what you do. And I don't understand the award system. Uh, it's like, broken to me, as the fuck, award system dude. in general, like if, if you write one, for example, you have to explain how what this service member did was above their rank and responsibility level. Yep. To me, if you're a colonel, you should be required to be a good <laughs> battalion commander in a war zone. To me, the corporal who is now, because something happened, now he's the squad leader of the platoon sergeant. That's the person that deserves a higher level of award because he did or she did something outside their grade and experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, at the top, top, top end of awards, too, the negative side of it that a lot of people don't realize. Like, I'm very yeah. fortunate. A couple of the units that I served with, we have guys who've been awarded the Medal of Honor. The last thing that they ever wanted was the Medal of Honor. They were happy with that silver star. And next thing you know, when they got notified that, hey, this is getting looked at for upgrade, they're like, oh, no, their career's done, their life after the military's done, and it's turned into something that they, they never expected nor wanted it to be because in their mind, they're just doing the job that they're told to do. And not to mention the fact that you absolutely will not get one of those awards unless something horrific happens. True. And we, we all look at Medal of Honor recipients with a huge amount of respect, as we should, for what they've went through. But I guarantee you, ask every single one of them, would you take it back if you didn't have to go through that? And everybody says Hell yes. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right, so deployed to Fallujah. How long were you there for? I was there from January of 2007 until October, middle of October of 2007. All right, a routine, normal Marine and Fallujah deployment? Or were there any funny stories looking back on it now that you want to share? Uh, pretty good. I mean, it was a it was a normal deployment. I, I got shot in July through my arm and had to stay back. I decided not to go home, and I got to do like a fob hopping tour, which was pretty sweet because yeah. uh, I was one of the trainers for the dogs too. So I got to see essentially every part of Iraq from either a helicopter or on the ground helping out the different handlers that were there. So that was really fun because a lot of the dog handlers, it was really strange to be a dog handler too because your unit went, what unit were you with? I was in uh, 3rd Ranger Battalion at the time. Okay, so you're in 3rd Ranger Battalion. Everybody in 3rd Ranger Battalion, when 3rd Ranger Battalion deploys, everybody goes for the most yep. part. Um, same thing with Marines. If 2-7 deploys, all the Marines in 2-7 goes, everybody in your platoon were going to go. Dog handlers, they'd be like, all right, give me three from Okinawa, three from Iwakuni, two from Hawaii, yeah. two from 29 Palms, two from Yuma, and now you're going to go be a part of this unit. You're never going to train with them, ever. <laughs> like, you're never, ever going to train with them and do pre-deployment stuff. You're just going to fucking go, and they're not going to know how to use you, but you're either going to be in the very back of the formation or you're going to be in the very Which front. is all based and off of how you integrate with that platoon whenever you meet up with them. Or what the, really what the officer knows yeah, like about the capabilities, like what the platoon leader or, or the company commander knows. So it's your responsibility, even as a Lance Corporal to, or an E3, to go up to a major who could be the battalion XO and be like, this is not one of my capabilities, sir. This is my capability and this is what I'm able to do. 
that was a different position because I was an MP. I was a corporal at the time in E4, and I got tasked to go with 1st Recon Battalion. I'm not a reconnaissance Marine. I'm an MP. And I get with those guys, and I had read one of those books <laughs> that I read before was fucking Jarhead, and then while I was in, I read Generation Kill, and I knew all the different stories about, like, Iceman and Brad Colbert. Well, wouldn't you fucking know it? When I walk into the team room, it's Brad Colbert that's standing there. He was my platoon sergeant, um, one of the platoon sergeants whenever I was there. And actually, Brad is the one who, when I got shot, he went back into the room that I got shot in, pulled the bullet out of the wall, pulled the round out of the wall, and brought it to me at Fallujah Surgeon's Club. Wow. Incredible. What, what, what a small world, too. Yeah, it is. And um, I've emailed him a couple times because he th- that Generation Kill book is so unbelievably accurate yeah. describing, like, all the people that I know from that book in real life now. They are so much like the characters that he <laughs> describes there. Like, the, I don't think Brad called me by my last name or my rank the entire time I was with him. He called me Dog Handler, just like he called the journalists journalists the whole time. Any attachment, they would call, like, the engineers that would be attached to go. He'd be like, engineer, come here, Dog yep. Handler, come here, journalist, come here. Like, it, And it was that way all the time. And then once I proved myself that I could do this job, and I could do what they were asking me to do. We found a bunch of IEDs. We did a bunch of firefights and a bunch of raids. And by the time I had earned my spot and they thought I was good, he started calling me by, I think it was like two or three days before I got shot. I heard him refer to me as Catherine one time because we had three different dogs in the uh, company. And he was like, I want to take Catherine on this one. And I was like, hell yeah. yeah. Well, 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 look who fucking loves me. <laughs> Hey, real quick, not to get too far ahead of it, but when you finally go back to uh, dog training school and you're an instructor there, when you're talking and going over like platoon integration and company integration like that, is that something that you guys added back into the curriculum to get some of these young guys trained up and or at least aware of what's going to be needed from them? Absolutely. Um, So by the time I had got to the dog school, that was 2010 is when I got there. And by that time, there are so many dog handlers from the Army and Marine Corps, and really all of them. Like, we talk shit about the Air Force and Navy, but those motherfuckers were in Fallujah, too, as dog handlers. And Air Force handlers, they were there as well. So when people talk about, like, oh, you never did anything, you were in the Air Force or Marines or Coast Guard whatever— that's not accurate. Like the dog handlers in the compound that I was in, it was probably half Marines, but there was a quarter of them was Air Force. A quarter of them was Army. And you had some Navy handlers thrown in there as well. And the Navy augmented in Baghdad a lot as well. But everybody was involved. And that's kind of what made being a dog handler great because you got to see Marine leadership style is so different than Air Force leadership style, the Navy leadership style. And some of the Marines got better as dog handlers with a more calm type of leader watching them. So it was interesting for me from a leadership perspective to watch how different people interacted with different types of leaders. Too. Yeah. All right. Well, you mentioned it. Got shot in July. Kind of break it down. What ended up happening? I think it's July 31st, if I remember correctly. That is correct, which is also the day that I got hired at Barcelona. Hey! announced on the same day. Um, so... July 31st of 2007, we started the mission at, it was either OP Mohammed or OP Omar, just outside of Fallujah. And our mission that night 
the Intel guys were like, this is one of the most dangerous roads in the world right now. There's because at the time there was infighting between we were trying to flush everybody out of Fallujah still and trying to flush people out of Ramadi. And at when we were doing that, so many bad guys ended up in karma. And we had to clear a route going in. Route clearance wouldn't go in because it would take them too long and they'd be and clear sniper like sniper positions would be able to wreak havoc of the way that you had to go in these roads. So they sent us in in teams of six on different sides going through canals and things like that. And we had to clear the road under the cover of darkness. And it took us about 13 hours to do it, um, to get just a couple clicks and a couple kilometers of where we had to go. Real quick, and, I'm, I'm just so people are aware, doing explosive sweeps sure. this entire time. Right, yeah. So my dog, I ran point. Um, I was at the front of the platoon, and my job was to be about 50, 75 meters in front of everybody else and basically standing in the exact spot that you don't want to be in the middle of the road. Um, so I would be on the middle of the road. I had a 15-foot leash that I had attached to my chest. Um, I had like a carabiner that would be on my flak jack, and I had a brick of C4 in one side of my up top so I could put it down occasionally to so let Psychus smell it so he could still think that we're playing a game instead of finding bombs that would kill both of us. <laughs> and then, uh, so we're just rolling down the road and having a good old time and doing, finding IEDs and blowing them up in place and shit. And then we have to bed down. We get to the objective, we kick a family out of their house, which still is one of the main things that haunts me, like that we did to people. Just absolutely brutal yep. that we did that. I don't know if we had much of a choice, like on the ground. Obviously, higher leaders like the president had different choices that they could have made, but I don't know if we could have tactically. And we get into the house. We set up positions. Finally, the convoy is able to come in after us, and we had already set up some rooftop security and things like that. So by the time that the replacements had come in with the heavy vehicles, the 12 of us, 13 of us that were doing the sweep coming in we got first sleep shift well about probably 30 45 minutes into our sleep shift the entire it sounded like the entire world opened up with gunfire so they had had several dudes that had low crawled through these different canals that we couldn't see and they it was a complex attack right away they started dropping mortar rounds on us rpgs into the house tons of small small arm fire and it was like one two boom, explosion of gunfire all around us. And so I heard it, stood up immediately to get my weapon that was attached to my leg, like it was all the time, to get my weapon and go have an advantageous field of view so I could lay some rounds down range as well. Well, that didn't go great. Um, <laughs> I was walking, and from a window, a bullet came. Either it went through the wall or through the window, I'm not sure. It went through me. And I spun around, and I had originally thought, because when you're a house that's built in that part of the world is hit with a mortar, there's going to be bricks and shit that fly. I mean, if you did it to my house in San Antonio, it would do the same yeah. thing. There's bricks and shit that flew inside. I thought I got hit with one, and it spun me around. But I looked down, and I could see the hole in my arm. And I was like, oh, fuck me, man. <laughs> and so I called out to the corpsman. And the corpsman came down and looked at it tied like a, a hasty tourniquet, you know, like not like super tight where it's going to completely make my arm fall right. off, but tight enough to stop the blood a little bit where it turned into a trickle like you would do if you were 
worried about your pipes right. being ready to freeze. <laughs> so that's essentially what my blood flow was at the time, just to keep some of it going. And I sat, and he was like, sit down over here. Um, and the firefight's still going on for probably another 45 minutes or so. It was long. And we had mortar rounds that were getting dropped in. We couldn't call for a helicopter to get, um, to get us back. So I sat underneath there, and the first thing I thought about was my kids. Like that old, that old, I guess, wives' tale that you, your life flashes before your eyes. I don't really know if my life did, but my kid surely did. And I thought about, is she going to be embarrassed of me if I don't have an arm when I come back? Uh, and it was all those things like that you were going through. And eventually I found out that I wasn't going to lose my arm. I got onto the helicopter about 45 minutes later after – denying morphine for about two hours. Well, the helicopter was able to come. We weren't able to leave for about two right. hours and denied morphine, got into the hospital. And the last thing I said before I went under was, don't you fucking call my mama. Because oh. <laughs> I knew I knew my mom would be like a nervous wreck if she heard that I got shot and I was in sur surgery. Yeah. I wanted to tell her that I got shot because I knew I wasn't in like li my life wasn't in danger at all. So I, I wanted to be the one to tell her. And when I did, she thought I was joking um, because I had lied to her essentially the whole time I was deployed and told her I was just working administrative jobs. <laughs> so. <laughs> wow. What a story. Yeah. In yeah. that moment of chaos, you obviously running to do your job. What is expected out of every Marine and just go man your position to, to support your buddies who are in the fight and you happen to catch a round. Mm. Obviously, the corpsman there can only do so much. You talked about the hasty tourniquet and everything else like that because there's still an active fight going on around you. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, when you started to have the thoughts of your kids and what they would think of you and how they would view you, was it calming at all? Because it has to seem like no. it was one of the most chaotic worlds around you. And I don't know if you've probably ever experienced anything else like that in your life, but was there a moment at all of sitting there and thinking, you know what, is this the end of the world or is this going to be okay? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I didn't think about that at all. I, I thought about, because I knew the amount of gunfire. I had been in several firefights at that point. I knew the amount of gunfire sounded different and the closeness of, because, you know, normally you can hear snapping. Yep. Like if you're getting shot at, you don't hear the muzzle blast. You don't hear any of that. It's the snapping sound that's going over your head. I was used to the snapping. I could hear the muzzle blast very, very clear from like AKs and shit. Yeah. And I I knew they were they were close and there was a lot. And it was a it felt very, very different. But luckily those dudes are fucking unbelievable, man. Like the recon marines and what they did. Like when you walk, when I walked back out on the roof waiting for the helicopter, when some of it had slowed down, I was like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> like, because I had seen it, what it looked like just two hours before right. that or something, and it looked like, I mean, it looked completely different. And I just remember looking back at some of the guys and being like, "You motherfuckers are ridiculous!" <laughs> like some of the shit that you could do is crazy, and like their communication styles, yeah, and things like that, and. That's why nobody has the same experience because what those guys were capable of was unbelievable to me. And what I was capable of and what my dog was capable of blew their dicks Absolutely. off. Like they weren't, they weren't, they were like, how does he know it's there? Like, how did you know that fast? And squirter details, like 
thing when you normally would have to have two fellas on the back, like waiting for somebody to run out of the house. You don't have to do that when you have yep, a military exactly. workout because I promise you he's faster. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. It's uh it's incredible. So you get finally get medevaced out of there. Uh air or ground? I was air. All right. So we get you up to the the nearest cache and probably directly into surgery and then what come out the other side and you're all hopped up on drugs still. And that's when you got to call mama. Yeah. I was, uh, so I laid down on this and another dog handler had to come and pick up Psyka from the hospital. Cause I still had him. Like when I, he came with me on the bird, none of the other Marines could have handled him. He would have ate him up. So uh, we get on, we get into the hospital and they are already had a dog handler from that base come and like put the sleeve on so Psyka could bite him and then they could put a leash and a muzzle on him so they could put him in the kennel. And I got there and did the surgery. I woke up in the hospital bed. It was the first time I had been in a really cold air condition in a long time. Cause I got there. Think about how hot it is in Fallujah and oh, how yeah. hot it is in Iraq. And we were doing nighttime missions, daytime missions, all kinds of shit. And I was just so tired of being constantly sweating my dick off to the point where like you're getting prickly heat all the time and it just sucks oh that's the worst you can't and i felt like i couldn't complain at all because i was if i was with other mps i'd have been complaining every second of the day but because (laughs) i was with recon dudes i never wanted to because i didn't want them to think that i was a little bitch so i wake up in the hospital bed i open my eyes the first thing i feel is it's cold and then i see essentially like a big screen TV, like probably a 40 inch TV that had AFN on it. And there was a Red Sox Yankees game going on. And they had on the bottom of the, the little ticker that was going across the Kevin Garnett trade from Minnesota Timberwolves to the Boston Celtics. It happened that day. And I always liked the Celtics. So I was sitting there. I was like, fuck yeah. Like while we were there, my arms in like this huge ass cast and I, and the nurse comes up. She's like, are you ready to call your mom? I'm like, yeah, I'm in a better mood. Let's talk. (laughs) How'd she end up taking it? Bad. I mean, we actually, that's probably one of the most emotional podcasts that I ever did. Uh, I actually brought my mom on ZBT to have her tell from her perspective of what it was like to have me get shot. Uh. Here and I interviewed her about it. I didn't let Kate or Cons or anybody do it. I interviewed her about it, and it was it was tough. Like hearing, because you you know your parents are nervous about you. you know your family's nervous about you, but when they really really know that you're in combat and you're not just like on a base and you're not like just hanging out a little bit, they know that you're in the thick of things. It changed. I think it changed a lot of her like brain chemistry, honestly, like how much she worried about me and how much she was so concerned that I wasn't going to be the same or come like mentally, I wouldn't be normal again. Like all those types of things she was super concerned about. It kind of goes back to, I know I'm not the only one who says this, like in the military community and veteran community, but you know, we get a lot of thank you for your services. And and Mm -hmm. the majority of those are not so much directed at us. Like I get it. And I appreciate that, but like, yo, thank, thank like my mom and dad for the shit that they had to go through. Thank my wife and my children for the stuff that they had to go through because that's where it really should go. They're the ones that right. not only continue to like approve, but support and be your number one fighter there, no matter what you're going through. So mm-hmm. man, incredible. I'll put that episode in the show notes so everybody can go and, and listen to that. Cause I think it's would be a phenomenal story for people to listen to. And we got a lot of young parents out there. So it, it's, 
it's key, you know. I think that's one of the weirdest things about me in this position now is like people asking me parenthood and father advice and all this stuff. And I'm like, man, I'm I'm figuring it out a day at a time just like the rest of you guys. So I know Nobody you mentioned it knows how to be a parent. No, I, not at all. My oldest kid is 17 and a half and my youngest kid are 10. I've raised them the exact same way and they couldn't be more different. So I when I was younger, I would have said nurture over nature. And now I think nature over nurture <laughs> because my older daughter lived with me as a single dad. I was a single dad after I got out of um, Okinawa when I went back to Virginia. I was a sergeant and had a little redheaded two year old that I needed to take care of all the time. And it's. I she was with me solo while I was still in the Marine Corps, and she is like the girliest girl yeah. of all time. And then my other kid, McCartney, they're completely different. Love sports, love like being wild, loves getting dirty, and that kind of kid. And they've been raised the exact same. So you mentioned, you know, when you got shot, that you had uh, your oldest w- was born then, and then you ultimately go back on that deployment. You end up in Virginia. You know what were you doing then? I was just in MP company and what you're saying about medals earlier, it does play an effect on what people expect from you, right? Like (laughs) once you get a few medals, like you walk into a new unit and people see you and the first thing they see is your chest and they view that as accomplishments and what you're capable of. And when I switched from Okinawa to Quantico, there was not a lot of people at Quantico that had combat experience or combat awards or anything like that so when i walked in it was different like for especially for the dog handlers that were there and some of the other younger mps so they put me as the training chief right away like for doing training for any type of combat stuff and it was not a role that i was ready for i'd only been a sergeant for probably like a month and a half and i was really nervous about it because i was like my career is going well i got meritoriously promoted to sergeant like i I don't want to fuck this up by taking a job that's too advanced for me right away. But one of my mentors was like, just shut up and do it. Uh, if you can't do it, they'll fire you and move you to another spot, and they'll they'll be glad that you tried as, a, as such a junior sergeant. Right. I ended up doing well in the role, and then I went back to the kennels for a while and got to do a lot of really cool like presidential missions with President Obama and President Bush. I was really involved with presidential debates and got to go to all of them um, during 2008. And that was really fun and spent a lot of time in New York and go to different countries with the Secretary of State. Being a dog handler is the shit. It was awesome. So and, at the time being Secretary of State Clinton. Right. Yep. What a, what, a, what a weird and fascinating journey that you've been on. It really is. And that's why I say it's like three lives because so much of that stuff is so different. Like my personality in the Marine Corps, really after I got shot, because I, once I took that job, I really like focused on being the best Marine that I could possibly be. And that's when I started to read everything. That's when I started to learn drill manuals that I probably would never need or anything like that. And it worked out because when I was in sergeant's course, because I was the kennel master, I got emails from the first sergeant for platoon sergeants. He's like, as a sergeant, I would get those. And our company gunnery sergeant had to go to OCS. Um, the officer candidate school happened at Quantico. And they would take folks who had been drill instructors before at either Paris Island or San Diego, and they bring them to Quantico, and they can be summertime instructors where they're not doing it full-time as a DI, but they're doing it part-time. Well, gunnery sergeant Owens was supposed to go over and be 
the OCS instructor. Like he was going to go teach there. And I wanted, and so somebody had to fill that role. The first sergeant sent it out. We need a new company gunnery sergeant. There was like six or seven staff NCOs, and I waited a day, and nobody said shit. And because he, he said reply all if anybody's interest, I waited a day, nobody said shit. I replied all and said I'm interested for a sergeant. And he was like, and I think because he was so mad at everybody else, he was like, come to my office today at Chow. Like, and even though I was in sergeant's course, and so I did. I told my instructor my first sergeant needs to see me about me volunteering to be a first sergeant or the company gunning, I think I'm gonna get my ass chewed. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought I like way overstepped my bounds and he was going to be pissed, but he was like, he, I walked in like reported to him because he had told me to report into my office at 1300. So I reported in and did all the stuff that you're supposed to do. And he asked me, how many Marines are supposed to go to the rifle range every single year? And I'd be like, well, everybody that's on the company roster, except for those that are E7 and above with 12 years experience or majors with 10 years experience, who's also shot expert twice in a row. And I could spit out all those different things. And once he was, once he asked me like three or four questions and I answered in that fashion, he was like, fuck it. You got the job, man. Like you could be the company gunny. And then he went and asked the captain. The captain said, yes, they put me in and the, other staff NCOs fucking hated it. Oh, I'm sure. Hated it. I'm sure. Because then I was telling them where to have their Marines at certain yeah. times and shit. And they, like, one of the staff sergeants got super pissed. And he's like, you're not going to tell me that I'm that my Marines are going to be here at 08. <laughs> and I was like, I am. Staff sergeant, they, they will be here at 08. And our first sergeant, uh, if you listen to ZBT, I impersonate his voice all the time. He's like, you fucking hurt him, Gunny. Get him, Gunny. Tell that fucking staff sergeant what the fuck is up. Fuck you. Fuck you, staff sergeant. Get out. <laughs> and so, and then the, he came back in like two days later having the same type of attitude. And the first sergeant came in. He was like, hey there, staff sergeant. Real quick question about Marine Corps customs and courtesy. Does a company Gunny billet outrank a staff sergeant and the staff sergeant was like well yes as far as billet for a sergeant and he was like well then how about you stand at parade rest for the sergeant and i was like oh, wow fuck <laughs> and he was like i can't do that first he eventually did it and i thought if i get fired from this job and i have to go back to a platoon as just oh you're a sergeant i am Fuck. Yeah. So it was another one of those things where I worked really, really hard to ensure that didn't happen because I only had about a year left until I could PCS. And I was like, if I keep this going for a year, I'm going to be good. Otherwise, I am fucked. Every duty that happens, it's going to be me. For and luckily, sure. I did. I, luckily, I did well enough where I got to stay and then went on to Lackland after that. <laughs> Man, good for you. Hey, how are you yeah. managing all of this stuff? Like you said, being like a single dad too. Poorly. I would say poorly. Uh, my, I did everything well. Like I did work well. I did being a dad well. Myself was a wreck. Like trying to keep everything together, not doing any type of therapy, not being on any type of antidepressants or anti-anxiety after getting shot and just trying to deal with everything by being tough and gritting it out and being that staff NCO. Cause I had totally bought into that's who I was. Um, I was this Marine. I used to tell people all the time, I want to be the Sergeant major of the Marine Corps. That's my goal is to be the Sergeant major of the Marine Corps. And once I got to Lackland and really once I met my wife, re-met my wife and started hanging out with her and she was telling me certain things about my Hold personality. On. How, what do you mean re-met? 
Where'd you meet in the so, first place? <laughs> so that time when I was teaching at churches, I was 18, and this is going to sound fucked up, so don't turn the pot <laughs> off here. I was 18, and she was 13 in my Sunday school class. We didn't talk for 10 years, and I didn't recognize her or anything. She, she DM'd me on Facebook and was like, hey, I'm not sure if you remember me. And I wrote back, I'm sorry, I'm not sure I do, which was odd because my wife, if you've seen her, she's fucking gorgeous. And I was like, this is a face I remember. I'm not attracted enough to forget this face. Like That's not something that I was dealing with. And we started talking again. And I, about three weeks in the conversation, I asked her if she wanted to come up to D.C. where I was living. And she said yes. And she came up there and spent um, like three or four days and then came back a few months later. And I didn't let anybody meet my daughter until I was like pretty serious about them dating. And when she came back up, I still had to work. And I came home one day about three hours early and she was sitting on the floor and had gone to daycare and picked Kelsey up and which I had said she could do. And they were sitting on our living room floor playing a puzzle. And I, when she left that trip, we'd only seen each other three times. I went and bought the engagement ring. I knew wow. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, and so we've been together for, we actually had our 13th wedding anniversary on Monday. We were only dating for like four or five months, and we've never really had a bad period of time. Like, we've just been really fortunate to have the same kind of worldview, the same kind of desires and passions and the drive to achieve our goals, and we've been just a great partnership. Yeah, I I know you said that everything with, with Kelsey was going good, but issues at all? Coming in, first of all, coming into a relationship where you know that the guy has a, a child that he's caring for by himself, but ultimately coming into this role as a, you know, a new parent. Um, there, I mean, there's always those. Anytime you put step in front of anything, there's always going to be a little bit of an issue. You know, like that's just part of the game. But I would say that Kelsey loves my wife and views her as the mom and all that stuff. So it's we don't. I'll I'll put it this way. My youngest found out that Kelsey was technically their half-sister when they were about nine, and it blew their mind. (laughs) Because we never talk about that or anything like that. Um, So when they figured out family tree shit, my youngest was blown away that that's technically their half-sister. Well, yeah. Good for you guys for, for not only instilling that in your children, but making it seem like this is just the norm. Mm hmm and you're right. When you apply titles to things, it, it creates this weird, I don't want to say like really a divide, but just making a difference in something that doesn't need to be different at all. Like if you're in this, you're in this. And yeah, it, and I think that's if I had any advice for like you're going into a step type of relationship, so many folks get hung up on the title and like, oh, well, what are you going to call this new mom figure, dad figure or whatever figure? And that shit comes. It's kind of like a nickname. Like to me, that's like giving yourself a nickname. It's not going to stick. Like you need to wait until the kid gives you a nickname and what that's going to be what you're called. Like you don't need to figure it out of the onset of the relationship or the onset of the marriage. Just let things develop. Did she move up with you guys when you're still in DC or wait until you guys went to Texas? So we, she had finished her master's degree and I had my orders. Ah, cut smart girl. About, Good for you. Yeah. And, 
And now she has a PhD, too. Real smart. <laughs> and so her college professors were not happy that she was dating an enlisted Marine. Because <laughs> they were like, she has so much potential. Why would she do this to herself? <laughs> and, I was like, and honestly, I couldn't even be mad about it. I was just like, yeah, it's fucking yeah, true. fair. <laughs> true. <Yeah. laughs> so we, we cut orders. I got orders, and she got her diploma like three days apart. So I got the biggest U-Haul that U-Haul has and put my car on the back and then put all my shit in it, drove from Virginia to Mississippi to pick her up, and then we drove to Texas together. Man, that's a long drive. I just did that a couple weeks ago. It's brutal. Yeah. That 10 drive is awful. Man. It, well, the only thing that I'll say, my saving grace now is that, you know, every couple hundred miles you got a new uh, Bucky's that's popping up, and I was like, okay. And I had the dogs with me in the U-Haul truck. I was like, this is miserable. Mm-hmm. All right, so you get down to Lackland. When you were going there, it sounds like you're like you're going to be a career marine. Mm-hmm. So when you got down there, and I'm sure it it sounds like a position that you wanted to go do, pumped up about being an instructor. When did the transition kind of start for you and say, you know, maybe this isn't what I thought I was going to do? Uh, when I got arrested, that changed a lot. So oh shit, what happened? I got I got super drunk and. Uh, assaulted a police officer actually and so uh, i woke up in a jail cell and thought i had gotten like a dui because i had no recollection of what happened at all and then once i fi- i was in a cell by myself and i thought this is weird that i'm in here by myself but maybe they're doing it because they know that i'm military and they're just giving me like preferential treatment or something like that i go into the booking and they tell me what i'm charged with and i was like oh my god because the charge was aggravated assault on a police officer and I had federal credentials. I was yeah. like an MP. I was teaching dog school, and I was like, "There's this is not what the fuck happened. Like, I had no idea what was going on. They're telling me my bond and shit. I have to call work and let them know. And I, I thought my life was essentially over in a lot of ways. Like I, And I think it was close. It was very close. If I didn't have my military stuff like all the different things that commanding officers and different supervisors had said to said about me before all of these incidences i don't think i would have got the same outcome but the fact that they could see that i was a redeemable person who had done some great things in the past and is not most likely a super bad guy they let me not let me off easily but i had 10 years of probation uh 45 days in county jail and a bunch of other stuff too, like a bunch of money, probation costs for 10 years, lawyer fees. It was $150,000 bond. So all this money that I had saved from deployment, it was gone. I had to feed my family like hot dogs and stuff. And that's just on the civilian side. So what was the, what was the military side of it? Cause that punishment I'm sure was, was far greater than what it was financially. Nope. They all knew me and they knew, dude, And I had been telling them, luckily, and this is my advice to anybody, if you are struggling, let your chain of command know. Or if not your chain of command, your chain of authority. And the difference there, enlisted versus officer. If you're an enlisted person, let your chain of authority know so that they can help guide you. If you need to go to medical appointments, they can kind of take care of you and do all those different things. But I had been honest with my leadership and told them, look, I've been going to get treatment for PTSD every time because I knew something was wrong when I went to a mall and I saw some folks um, from that were Muslim and they were wearing traditional Muslim clothing, the women were, and they had like a hijab on and I felt 
like in my body. I felt like a vitriol reaction of like yeah. my chest was shaking and my heart was shaking. And I went back and told my wife and she was like, babe, that's not normal and that's not okay for you to feel that way. And because I didn't want to be racist or Islamophobic or anything like that. Like I did not want that, but I could sense that that was coming. And I went to medical and started PTSD treatment and they had actually had recommended for me to get medically separated. And I denied it at first. I was like, no, I want to stay in. I want to fight this and do it be a good example and all that shit. So when everything happened, they knew already that I had been shot, that I had PTSD, traumatic brain injury. I was trying to get treatment and that all these different things were happening at one period of time. And luckily my chief warrant officer he called a colonel and he, the colonel that was in charge was on, we were in Texas. The colonel that was in charge of us lived in Missouri and worked in Missouri at Fort Leonard Wood. And he told him, he's like, this is the best Marine I've ever worked with. I refuse to separate them administratively because they, because they could do it. If you catch yeah. a felony charge 10 days, they can kick you out. And the chief warrant officer was like, you could take one of my ranks, but I'm not, I'm not going to process that paperwork. Damn. And, so then that, that colonel looked into my record and was like, maybe this is one that we should stick with. So that colonel took the advice of the chief warrant officer. The colonel called the judge and told him like my background and told him like some of the things that I had done. And can we wait for his trial until we can actually let him separate from the military so that he still gets VA benefits and he still gets the GI Bill and he's going to be able once he gets better to have some semblance of a normal life. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. Good for you. I mean, ho- ho- bad, tough situation, horrible Very situation tough. to be in. Yeah. But man, I, I guess, again, lesson learned there. Uh, your chain of command can do marvelous, marvelous things for you as long as you're honest with them and there's clear lines of communication, which I think could be the downfall and is the result of the majority of issues that happen all throughout the military is just Yeah, lack- I, I will say because of that, I wouldn't have done that if the people that I had, like that chief warrant officer, if he wasn't as good of a mentor and leader and listened to me and took my advice and took my, what I was saying about the Marines and we didn't have that relationship, that would have never happened. But because he was the type of leader and we hear it all the time, you should know your troops birthday. You should know what their wife's names are. You should know what their husband name is, what their kid's name is, shit like that. That dude lived that mantra and because he did, I trusted him enough to tell him something that I had only told my wife and my own doctor. And he was the only other person in the world that knew I was going through what I was. Damn. So your, your med board process goes through then. Mm-hmm. How long had you guys been married at this point? Hmm, uh, about three years, maybe. That's a, like that. that's a tough, did you, have you guys had, uh, your own children yet? Yeah. McCartney is, um, ours that's that is a lot in a uh, somewhat new relationship with with some young young kids thrown on top of that and a bunch of of fines and community service and and just like you were saying you're dealing with your own stuff and doing the right thing and seeking treatment you know how did you make it through that that section of your life uh luck in a lot of ways i mean honestly the my kids and my wife is what kept me going and because I was very, very concerned about prospects for the future. I, before I got hired at Barstool, I had applied at like Lowe's and Home Depot and got declined because I had a felony. And luckily, just ca- just because you at, when you're applying, you got to check 
something yeah. that says you. Yeah. And now that in Texas, you're you're not required to put that on there anymore. But once they do a background check, yeah. it's going to show up still. Even though I have had the career that I have had at Barstool and done the things that I've done there, I still, if I was going to apply somewhere, I, that would come up on a background check. Luckily, and I was honest with um, my employers at Barstool about it whenever it all started and wanted them to know right away. Like, I didn't hide anything. I, I told them exactly. And the only reason why I'm at Barstool is most likely because I got denied those jobs at like Home Depot and Lowe's because the only way I could bring in any more money, I still had the GI Bill. So yeah. I applied to UTSA and went to school. And for four years or for three and a half years, that gave me $1,600 a month more on top of my retirement. So we were able to live decently. That I got my last GI Bill check when Dave Portnoy called me to offer me a job. Wow. It meant to be, man. Mm-hmm. That's that's crazy. Hey, what was it like real quick? You said you went to uh, UTSA being kind of the older, somewhat disgruntled veteran that's in the classroom. I mean, I just sat in class and tweeted all day about the Jacks. <laughs> I, I mean, that's all I did, really. And I... My my mom the other day, she's in town. She was like, "Why did you pick communications?" And I was like, "It's the fucking easiest degree. Like that's <laughs> that's why I wanted to." What did you think you were gonna do? No idea. I would have taken anything at that point. It was one of those things because I always thought I could fall back on dog handling. You know, like I because I'm a great dog handler. I thought very least I'll find some job where I can be a dog handler. There's gonna be somebody that will hire somebody with my level of expertise and experience. And, and I'm sure there's there's guy. contractors or something running around the the you know the at Lackland at the training center who knows what it is. Yeah, but I wasn't able to get any of those jobs anymore. True, like, like the GSA jobs, I couldn't do it. Like even Blackwater or any of those other options that were around the contracting where you could go back to deployment because I'd have done that in a second if yeah. I had the option to give my family like 150, 200 grand a year at that point. I'd have done that in a second. But I, I couldn't, so I kind of had to figure it out. So how'd you get hooked up with Barstool? So really, it's just a lot of tweeting. Um, and PFT commenter got hired, and everybody was going bananas because people love PFT, obviously, and they knew that he was going to be pairing up for with Big Cat for a football podcast, and that was going to be huge. It's still the biggest podcast in sports, even six years later, which is crazy. But somebody tagged Dave in a tweet, and this would never happen now because Dave has so many followers now. Somebody tagged him with, like, you knocked this PFT commenter higher out of the park. You should check this dude Chaps out. I had been doing a podcast uh, for, like, four or five episodes, just talking into a shoebox with a lapel mic (laughs) into it with some of the egg crate cartons from mattresses behind it to make it sound better. And I'm doing the podcast, and Ian Rappaport, uh, because I had tricked him a couple times on Twitter – he agreed to be my first guest. And then I would just start telling stories. And somebody said, check this dude chaps out. And Dave said that he was laughing like audibly in the airport when he was listening to it. And he got my number from Dan. But they were doing like the rundown, um, which is one of our shows, like afternoon kind of show where we give like the different topics of the day, the trending topics. If I remember correctly, though, I don't think he knew exactly who you were. Didn't he call you pork skin or something like that? Pork chop. Yeah. Pork chop. So he's like, there's this because I had the NFL shield behind my avatar on Twitter. And I did have like 40,000 followers or something like that. Whereas a big following where it's not 
unbelievable that somebody with that following is working at NFL Network just doing like blogs or something. And so he's like, there's this big cat. Do you know this guy, Porkchop, that works at <laughs> NFL Network? And he was like, no, I don't know anybody named Porkchop. And then it kind of he's like, he does like fake tweets. And he's like, oh, you're talking chaps because me and Big Cat had DM several times back and forth. And he got my number and called me up. And he was like, hey, man, um, I'm Dave Portnoy. I run Barstool Sports. And one of my old Marines at Quantico was a Boston guy. So I used to read Barstool and knew exactly what it was. And I was like, holy shit, this is incredible that it's doing that and yeah, i thought it, it, you'd, maybe, be, you'd be hard to find a, a team bay or a company ao that doesn't have somebody talking about barstool uh right. specifically during those days I, we, we read the blog like every single day yeah and that's just the way it was and like i so i was pumped to even like talk to him because i was a fan you know like i was i had read and laughed my ass off in my office about some of the things that he had said and when he approached me about it he was like can you write and I'm thinking, I don't know, <laughs> like I, I can write like college papers. I just graduated. Like I can do that, but I didn't know if I could blog. So I said, honestly, I, I'm not sure I wrote well in college, but I'm not sure if I can do this type of thing. And he's like, well, why don't you take this weekend, write a couple of blogs and just email them over to me. And so I did, I just like went and got like the main story, just like they do on Barstool and then did my commentary on the bottom. And he said it was really good. I told my wife, um, I think they're going to offer me a job of being like a contractor where I can do like five or six blogs a month. Maybe they'll pay me a couple hundred bucks. That would be sick. <laughs> and so he calls me back after I send him those blogs and he's like, Hey, we would like to offer you a job full time. And I acted like I had lost cell phone reception for a minute. Cause I was like legitimately choked up and was like on the verge of tears like that my family was going to be fine. Cause like I said, that GI bill was stopping. I, we were going yep. to be in an $1,800 deficit in a matter of time. So having that job offer, making more money than I ever made in the military, I was like, Oh, we're going to be okay. And it was like a watershed moment of where I knew from that point forward that I was going to be able to provide for my family. My wife was going to be able to provide for our family and we were going to be fine. And not just fine, but we are going to thrive. And we really have. In the past 10 years since that incident, we have really devoted ourselves to do as much as we can for the community because I am so fortunate that I didn't get put in prison for the rest of my life. I mean, my charges were 5 to 99 years is what they read me when I first went. And I thought my life was over. And that's the reason, a huge reason why anybody that listens to ZBT knows that we talk about mental health a lot. We talk about talking to your buddies, calling them, even when you think they might not want to hear from you type of situation, because it really could have ended my life. And I got really lucky that it didn't. Is that the driving factor to why you stuck around San Antonio? Uh, it's one of the reasons, the biggest reasons why, because there's a lot of things I don't like about Texas, but that no um, land tax and no <laughs> property tax. Property tax is a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So that helps out a shit ton. Yeah, I agree. I just moved from North Carolina up here to just up south of Dallas for that exact reason. So I hear yep. you, man. So when you first started, they just thought, oh, you're just a funny guy from the internet. You talk football most of the time, or he's mix mixing it up with all these football people. But what were you going to do? He And that that's kind of the thing that goes 
under the radar at Barstool with talent development is that Dave is self-driven, Dan is self-driven, Kevin is self-driven. And because they are so self-driven, they expect other people to be self-driven. I've worked here for six and a half years, never once, not one time has Dave or Dan or Kevin ever asked me to write something or have a take about this or don't talk about that. Everything is based off of what you as the content creator want to do. And so he told me, because I was pitching ideas. As soon as I got hired, it was like Marine mentality. Okay, you want fucking ideas? I'll give you a hundred goddamn ideas <laughs> right now today. And so he called me back eventually after I gave him like 10 different podcast ideas. And he was like, you don't have to have a podcast that launches next week. You don't have to have a <laughs> podcast that launches next month. Just take your time. We hired you because you're talented and that's the reason why and just go do your thing. And that's, to me, that's the barstool difference for content folks. What started as uh, eventually Zero Block 30, but where did you get hooked up with cons at? Um, so when I first started ZBT, I was going to have folks from any MOS I could find on the show and just talk about the military from that perspective. Like we, uh, nobody knows what other people do except for people in that job. Like yeah, not only that kind of stuff, it changes everywhere you, you could from right. every location across the military, exactly. a person could be doing a different little side gig of that specific MOS. Yep. And so I put that out there that I was looking for people to interview and got some like some mariners and some artillery folks and cons reached out. And I saw that like some of the Barstool people had already followed him. So they he was like familiar with Barstool and things like that. And he told me we went to West Point and played football. And he asked me if he could if I was interested in having him as a guest on the show. And I said, yeah. And one of the first things that we talked about was gun control and what our thoughts were on that. And so people were pretty surprised that that was what we hopped into right away and then i invited him back the next week and then eventually he just became he just kind of stuck around i guess and became <laughs> the ghost um and kate came on about two years later yeah a kate's, year and a, half later, kate's a phenomenal later. story too i remember reading uh or seeing some of her stuff at the duffel blog yeah how did she uh, i'm guessing that you kind of looking from things on the military side of the house, you just saw her and like, wow, this is definitely somebody that we should invest in. Yeah. So she had a couple of tweets that were sent to me, one of which was a calzone that looked like a vagina. <laughs> and she posted it and made some funny comments about not only does this calzone look like a vagina, but it also has a clit and it did have a clit. And <laughs> so I looked through her profile, saw that she was a Marine and had wrote, written for Duffel Blog. So I asked her if she wanted to come on the show just to share her story. It said in her bio that she had worked at like the, the Daily Show with Jon Stewart. She was part of the Veterans Immersion Program there. And once we were done with the interview, I saw how she tweeted and thought she was very funny, quirky, unique. And I asked her if she wanted to help out our social media team. And she did that for about uh, three or four months. And then she started, I said, do you want to have something called Kate's Corner, where she would pick a topic that she wanted to talk about and do like a three or four minute soliloquy about that. And then she hopped in when we did a platoon room, which is we just talked generic stories, and she was a great fit. And then after that, she became full-time, and I asked her if she wanted to be my co-host on a radio show on Sirius XM, and we did that for a couple of years until Barstool walked away from Sirius. So that was me and Kate. Ah, 
You've grown a, an incredible team around it. You're up to 500 episodes now of Zillblog 30, but you also uh, are a co-host on Podfathers. Podfathers is a show that's with me, Clem, and another dude, Large, who are all very funny guys. And we just kind of talk parenting from an honest perspective. I think a lot of times you feel like you have to wax poetic when you're talking about parenting, and we talk about the bullshit that's involved. We talk about the highs and the lows, but we're honest about the lows and we focus in on commiserating about the mids, <laughs> the everyday. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. Because you expect the highs and you expect the lows. It's the middle bullshit that sucks. Everybody knows you're going to have parenting lows. Your kid's going to be sick, going to break an arm. Something like that's going to happen. It's the everyday that doesn't move the needle for anybody else in your neighborhood, but your house is a disaster and chaos. <laughs> that's when parenting is hard. Yeah. I got one home. I got twins that are five years old, and they're they're sep- mid September babies, so they're not old enough yet to be in school. This is their last year of like oh. pre K or whatever. One of them randomly got sent home yesterday for having like a ninety nine point nine fever, meaning that she's out of school again today, even though she's just running around causing nothing but chaos in this house for no reason, eating whatever she wants, and I don't quite understand why or how, but all of these little micro situations that happen on a daily basis are some of the hardest and most challenging things that you can possibly go through as a parent, but also like the funniest and most adorable things. And you're like, what in the world? How did we get here? Yep. No doubt about it. If I remember correctly, the first uh, episode I heard of zero block 30, I was in uh, Northern Iraq. And this is when you guys first started in 2016 and you guys had rigs. I'm very familiar with rigs now because I work for a golf company. But at the time, Riggs was like your guys' foreign correspondent slash real journalism guy there. And he was talking about uh, the operation of Mosul. And I was in an active and part of the operation of the clearance of Mosul. And I remember sitting there <laughs> listening to it one night. Sitting there going, what, what in the world is, go- is going on here? Oh, because, yeah, you don't know, right? Not like, you're all. just getting information from people. You don't get the all the Reuters articles and AP and all that stuff. But that's part of it. That's part of this whole thing. Yeah. And it's normal people talking about it because it's hard as hell sometimes for the average person to stay up with not only the amount of news that's going out, out there, but if you look in foreign policy and everything else military-wise that's going on, I mean, people just glaze over most of the time because it's just too much to comprehend. Exactly right. You've been there for a, a big growth of Barstool. So what's changed, I guess, from when you first came on to how it is now? I mean, there's the technology has changed. The budgets for videos have changed. But in a lot of ways, not a lot, honestly. Like, I, I think the fan perspective is that a lot has changed. Dan and Dave are still Dan and Dave. Like, they are the ones that lead the company. But we got so many other people. I guess that is the the biggest thing that's changed is that we legitimately have something for every fucking buddy. Right. Like if you can't find something that you're interested in and that we have a podcast about, you got a real niche podcast that you want to <laughs> look for. Like it's got to be something like a pickleball podcast or something like that. Hey, which is huge. There's, I'm sure have. there's, there's plenty of potential there as well. Gotta be. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. Uh, like I said, I've been a, a, a reader of Barstool and then a listener and followed kind of its journey. The whole, our way and it's crazy still to see and look at it from the outside man for as great as a a company is and it continues to grow and there's it seems like there's no plateau it just continues to climb peak after peak after peak 
the group of people out there that are trying desperately to tear the whole thing down. Yeah, I think part of it that I I just been here for so long that I'm like so used to that. Like it doesn't even move the needle for me, really. Like unless I'm personally involved because Dave is in controversy every single day. So it's not like that's new. Yeah, that's very, very true. You know, if you had to say, trying to look forward to what the future is, what do you think it holds for you? Who knows, man, but I'm excited for it. I One of the things I think we're going to move to Chicago next year to be part of the wow. office there. Um, so I'm hoping to get more involved with some veterans in that area. And like at Barstool North, like the bar that we have in Chicago, I'd like to have veterans nights there where we can all hang out and have like a really cool looking VFW. Kind of overall growth. I'm sure you'd look at it probably as a much more of a positive or negative thing, but being part of a large media company like that, but still being able to live where you want to live. And do you feel like you're missing out at some point in times on being part of the overall? Oh, absolutely. Like having to make the decision to stay here versus going to New York at the beginning. I mean, cause I was one of the first, like new, I was the first hire after Eric Nardini, our CEO. Um, so like the new Barstool, I was the very first hire there. And part of it for me, like looking at what we're going to do now is keeping everything the same. Like I, I think that's a big focus of the brands that are growing bigger is still engaging with your audience, still talking to people in your DM, still doing all those different things and not taking it for granted. I mean, obviously my podcasts aren't anywhere near as big as those other folks like KFC and um, Big Cat and Dave. But for what I do, I'm so happy to have the ability to do it how I want to still, even with all this growth. Yeah. And it seems like specifically in the topics that you cover, there's no shortage ever of of things to bullshit about. You're right. There absolutely isn't. Thank God for offbeat and not the onion and our military. It keeps me informed. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Well, I don't, I, did we leave anything out there? I don't think so, but I do have, see, and look, I'm going to positively model it. I have therapy in exactly two minutes. Well, there you go. We got to get <laughs> chaps out of here. I appreciate you taking the time. People that don't listen, follow him at, uh, or listen to his, his podcast, Zero Block 30 or Podfathers. Check him out on social at Uncle Chaps and, and just support him, man. Awesome, dude. I appreciate, like I said, you taking the time and, and talking over. And I'm sure I'll uh, be bugging you again in the future about something else. No problem, man. Glad to be here.